Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to an amazing, amazing Saturday session. I'm so excited. Um, today, we, we had talked before about how we were going to do a Q&A for uh, Surah um, Mumtahina, but I didn't actually get many questions. And then we also wanted to keep moving forward. So Sheikh actually did pray istikhara on a surah and got surah tawbah. But because um, we all know this is a crazy semester, we have just an overwhelming amount of work and preparation for Surah Tawbah is going to take more than just one evening. So we are going to put that forward to next week, inshallah. So um, next Saturday, we'll cover Surah um, Al-Tawbah. But for today, we're going to go back to some of the um, short surahs that, um, that Sheikh has previously covered in um, line-by-line format. And these were ones that we actually did back in the 1990s um, in the halakhas then. Um, and so today, inshallah, we're going to have the Project Illumin spin, and we have about 27 of those, um, including um, Al-Fatiha, but the really short ones um, are ones that we can kind of just do in any order um, from what I understand from Sheikh. And so I'm really, really excited to go back and revisit some of those. I don't know if people have had a chance to listen to any of those. They are available on um, our SoundCloud channel and audio. A lot of times people write and they say, oh, why is the sound quality so bad? Well, because back in the 90s, we were doing it on audio cassette tape, and we had to convert them from audio cassette to digital. And so you, um, of course, lose a lot of sound quality in that. And so we tried to use you know, technology to improve the sound. But the content is absolute gold, and but I feel like this is really um, a treat and, a, and it's such a blessing to be able to revisit those surahs because they're really powerful and really important. So, alhamdulillah. Um, so that's the that's the plan, um, and I of course have to begin by calling attention to yesterday's incredible khutbah. Once again, um, I uh, we titled it "How to Kill the Soul of Islam," which is pretty. Um, interesting. Um, I think if people like see that title, be like, hmm, how do you kill the soul of Islam? Um, but it's actually, you know, a really important insight into the dynamic that happens with, you know, people who are giving khutbahs. Sheikh talks about this um, verse that we often repeat but never really think about, about how, you know, when God, um, when you are guided by God, you cannot go astray and anyone that God does not guide, you know, you can't, you can't help them, basically. I mean, I paraphrased very poorly. But there are two ways in which you can understand that verse, and one of them being if you choose, the, you know, the way, the guidance through God, then that is, you know, that can save you. Anyway, um, I obviously cannot do it justice, so I really highly, highly encourage people to go back and listen to it. But what was really powerful about it, um, aside from, you know, even just recognizing that the, there's a nuance in how you understand certain verses and they they do change the meaning tremendously because one is kind of like if you're just waiting for guidance from God it's a very passive receipt of God's guidance as opposed to if you actively choose I'm choosing the path of God I mean it's a very different dynamic and so it's a very meaningful distinction that deserves a lot of reflection and the point that Sheikh was making is that a lot of times you hear in khutbahs people repeat these verses, but they don't really actually take the time to really reflect on what does that mean and how do we apply that to the way we live our lives and what is the consequence of not doing that, not reflecting and not necessarily actively applying these principles um, uh, to, to our lives. And one very stark and horrifying example um, Sheikh talked about is there's an, um, a UN report that just came out about the number of people who are trafficked um, across the world, the vast majority of them being Muslim. And there's this statistic that there are 20 refugee 
children, effectively Muslim children, who um, disappear off the face of the earth. They come into Europe, they're registered, so it's like they arrived, and then they just disappear, never to be seen again. And we know that they end up getting lost. 20 in, a day. 20 a day, what did I say? Oh, sorry, 20 a day. Um, and they end up being trafficked. These are children who are sent, you know, to Europe with, from, you know, with the hopes of their family to find a better life, you know, whether they're coming from Iran or Afghanistan or Syria or wherever they're coming from. They're, you know, they're going in hopes of a better life. Their parents don't realize they're sending them off to end up trafficked. Um, and so it's a really, really devastating um, understanding of the reality of our world. Um, and, you know, this, um, when circling back, when you say, you know, in khutbahs, these, these phrases about how God, whoever God guides, you know, you, and not really think about what that means, and you're silent when it comes to these kinds of issues, people lose faith in what the true meaning of Islam is. And that's where you can kill the soul of Islam, because then people start thinking like, yeah, you can say these platitudes, but they don't actually have any real meaning on the ground. So um, there was so much to this khutbah. Uh, once again, I really encourage people to watch it or read the summary of it in the weekly email, or you know, hopefully it's got, I think it's got its place in Prophet's Pulpit 3, Volume 3, which we are already populating. So alhamdulillah for that. Um, volume 2 is already in the pipeline, so lots of things, good things to look forward to. Lastly, I just wanted to share this very interesting article um, that came out on September 8th in the New, in the New Yorker. The title is The Debate Over Muslim College Students Getting Secret Marriages. And it um, starts out um, talking about how there's an imam uh, at Claremont Colleges in Los Angeles. He's you know, getting contacted by Muslim students who want to be secretly married and ask him to perform these ceremonies. They don't want to tell the parents, but they want to have premarital sex, but they also don't want to you know, forget about their faith. So it's obviously a very complex um, and important um, question about how young people are navigating, you know, relationships and sex and, and you know, all of these things and trying still to stay within their tradition. Um, it's actually, I was expecting to read an article that was going to anger me or upset me. Actually, it was, I thought it was actually a pretty good article, but it just raised issues, which I think are really important, you know, especially here we talk about um, issues that deserve a lot of critical thinking and, you know, a con consideration about the challenges that, you know, are in our time and our age. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when I read these sorts of articles, they just, they strike me as, man, I wish the people who were part of this um, or who were being interviewed um, knew what we're doing here in the halakas. Um, and I'll read you this one sentence that actually really made me feel that way. Many of the feminist Muslim scholars I spoke with described feeling trapped between two intellectual traditions. Quote, you are either for women's rights or you are for Islam, but you can't be both, describing a widespread mentality. Um, and it you know, goes on to another scholar says um, that she had, quote unquote, deeply internalized the idea that she was an oppressed Muslim woman. Um, you know, Obviously, this is, you know, we are uncovering incredible gold in these halakas about rights, women's rights, women's empowerment. These are things that can be in our collective toolbox to try and come up with solutions um, to push Islam forward, to push humanistic thinking forward. Um, and I really wish and encourage people, if you are, you know, if you know people, just again, to spread the word about what we are learning here about 
the possibilities, right? And I liken this to, um, you know, a lot of times when we think about Islam, we think about what we hear in the mosque, you hear the same hadith over and over again. You hear the same verses over, over again. You hear the same commentary on the same verses over and over again. And you start getting, you know, this very clear picture that Muslims operate in a very small box. You only have a very limited toolkit in order to address the challenges of your world. And oftentimes when those you don't have the right tools in that toolkit, you just throw the toolkit away. And what I think what we're doing here is we are actually really broadening that toolkit. We have so many things to reflect upon in our Quran, in our book, you know, things that have not been fully developed, fully reflected upon, fully, you know, like brought forward um, and applied to our time and age. Um, and it's it's exciting. It's exciting from where we sit. Um, and I think that, you know, one, if you read this article, again, it's called The Debate Over Muslim College Students Getting Secret Marriages. Um, you can also add to your toolkit by some of the content that we've already produced that is, I think, extremely valuable. Um, there's uh, a couple of things that you can find on our YouTube channel. Um, the Sheikh did a Q&A on young Muslims, for young Muslims on dating and romance and marriage. It's like two different videos or two parts. Um, and then of course we did um, earlier this year two incredible Q&As on the topic of sexual and spiritual abuse. And these are all things that actually we're also working on um, hopefully publishing in a reading, you know, in a, in a book format. But that is still a, a bit out because that, you know, is um, that it, these things take a lot of time and a lot of effort. But I'm proud to say that, you know, a lot of the work that we do here is trying to make that toolkit larger, more nuanced, more, you know, um, agile for what we're confronting. And these things are out there right now. I hope that um, people will, will utilize them because, um, you know, part of this whole education is is liberation and empowerment but it has to be based on our tradition and one of the things that really struck me in this article um, is just that feeling like we already know what's in our tradition it's very limited there's not much there and they're so wrong and if only they knew what we're covering it could change just the whole game the whole conversation and you know push everybody forward into really enlightened beautiful thinking so um, anyway um, with, for what that's worth. Um, with that, I am so excited to s and start again on another short surah, Surah Al-Alaq. Thank you for joining us and look forward to an amazing session. المصر رحمة للعالمين خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا إحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين As Grace mentioned, the the next surah really should be Surat uh, At-Tawbah, but um, I am just currently swamped and extremely overtaxed. Um, and Surat At-Tawbah, we have 
really Surah At-Tawbah and Al-Ma'idah and Al-Nasr that are left that have never been covered at all. And At-Tawbah just needs effort and energy that I currently don't have. Inshallah, but in the meanwhile, we go back to the short sore, which I've actually covered in quite a bit of detail in the past. The coverage of the short sore will not focus, as I did in the past, on all the different schools of thought and all the different opinions about what this ayah means or what this word means or the various reports about whether this is intended to talk about a particular figure or not, but rather I'm just focusing in in this approach on, if, if you um, put it simply, on um, my understanding of the short soar. So it's far more succinct and far more to the point, and it, um, if you're interested in all the variations, if you will, then go back to the earlier tefasir that I did, the line by line, because um, there is a lot that about various historical debates and various theological orientations and so on that I'm leaving out. And uh, Surat Al-Alaq is, is a good example of that. Um, okay. So Surat Al-Alaq, although most say that at least the first five ayat, the, very, the first five verses, were the first ever revelation of the Quran. So, اقرأ بسم ربك الذي خلق that this these the opening of this surah, the first five ayat, are the first of the Qur'an to be revealed, period, even before Al-Fatha. And that most authorities say that then the rest of the, the surah was revealed about a year later in Mecca. So the surah was not completed until about a year later. Although that is what is often asserted as the, the, the majority opinion, 
interestingly, you do find within the Islamic tradition um, those who argue that Surat Al-Alaq was not the first revelation and that some say that Al-Fatha was the first revelation. Some say that Surat Al-Qalam was the first revelation. Um, although it takes a long time trying to figure out the basis for a claim or the put, put the basis for a counterclaim while it is fairly easy to understand why the majority said that surah al-alaq is the first revelation as we'll see and trying to understand why some said that it is not the first revelation but rather al-fatha or al-qalam or these are the two main surahs that people have claimed uh, came before al-alaq trying to figure out the basis for that claim yeah yeah you you read the report that you know such and such of the very earliest authorities said Qalam first came first, but the, the historical basis for that claim. So to make a long story short, because this, you know, something as simple as that takes a considerable amount of time to trace reports, to trace chains of transmission, to trace who said what and who communicated it and whether there's a possibility that in, in there's an error in transmission, um, whether there is a possibility that someone didn't hear of a particular report. Um, it, it, the result of this long process is, no, I'm fairly comfortable in saying that the claims that there was a revelation before Surat al-Alaq uh, are erroneous. And I think that the reason, there is a confusion that occurred um, because of the fact that the first five ayat were revealed first and then the surah was completed later in that the fi first five ayat were revealed then we had a fatha, then we had a qalam, and then Surat al-Alaq was completed. And some in transmitting the chronology of the Quran um, have, I don't want to use um, a, a charged word, but some um, were not careful in saying, well, you know, just because Surah Al-Alaq was completed a year later, it doesn't mean that it was not the first revelation. Okay, so why is it important that we understand whether it was first revelation or, or not? Well, because of the narrative about the beginning of the prophecy 
of Muhammad So in a very widely reported, um, now mind you, I've, I have first to warn you that when it comes to reports about the beginning of Revelation, you will find a considerable amount of fantastical um, mythology. So, for instance, a report that says that the prophet saw uh, the angel Gabriel sitting on a chair in the sky and that he, Gabriel was so huge uh, on his um, uh, on his seat on the when you when you spend the time fettering through these reports you discover that it, it, the historical basis is extremely weak and um, these were medieval narratives in which people were communicating important ideas but communicating these ideas within the medieval epistemological framework, the way that the medieval mind expressed events, described events, and so on and so forth. So there's a, a lot, and I, you know, this warning is important because if you have, although I personally do not advise Muslims to just simply pick up a book of hadith and read it because I, I think hadith because you're dealing with historic material that is historically contingent the nature of books of hadith is that they are a product of a historical moment and you need training to understand a discourse within a historical moment um, but nevertheless if someone does that, they will confront a lot of fantastical claims. Okay, the part though about Surah Al-Alaq that is very widely reported is the part that most Muslims are familiar with. That the Prophet because Mecca had a concept of Allah, but Mecca believed among the, I mean, there are different competing beliefs in Mecca, but the ones that seem to be quite dominant in Quraysh um, is that God created, God is the creator. But God, but Rububiyyah, Uluhiyya is God, and Uluhiyya is Uluhiyyat al-Khalq, meaning that God created. But Rububiyyah, and Rububiyyah here means the divine intent active in the universe is not God's. That this is a sort of a disinterested God. God created, but once God created, God became disinterested. 
sort of went on to other things. What is active, if you will, in what they used to in Greek philosophy called active intellect, the active intellect in the universe belonged to angels, demons, jinn, idols, things that are not God, things that are subservient to God, but they don't answer to God. So it is not that they, because, simply because in, in Qureshi belief, God is not interested. God is saying, you know, I, this, I created this universe and, um, you know, I have, if, if you will, semi-gods, you know, the, the, these powerful beings um, that run things. And because they're vested in, in the results, while I'm not. And Muhammad found this understanding extremely troubling. And all indications were, although this was a minority position, but even, for instance, um, Khadija's cousin, um, um, what was his name? Um, Waraka ibn Nufal. Uh, Khadija's cousin Waraka ibn Nufal disagreed with this understanding. And all indications were that Muhammad also found this idea extremely troubling because what it amounted to is that this is a, a God who's not involved, so it is not a compassionate God, it's not a merciful God, it is not a just God, it is a disinterested and disengaged God. And it left whether right or wrong were determined by the semi-beings, semi-divine beings, whether jinn or angels or idols or whatnot, um, they, they were the ones that produced results in the universe. And because they're the ones that produced the results in the universe, they also decided on what's right and wrong. And so... Muhammad's habit before the beginning of Revelation, as the famous story, the story that most Muslims know, is that he would spend long periods of time in isolation, in the, of course, whether in his home or in the cave of Hira, or even the the the, the practice that Mecca um, frowned frowned down upon is that he would go before the Kaaba and prostrate, which in his mind was the Kaaba of Ibrahim, uh, that, because he knows this from, from the Ahnaf that, and the mythology of Arabia at the time, that this is what Ibrahim and his son constructed, uh, that he would spend a considerable time in sujood um, before the Kaaba, or he would go to Hira and be in a state of 
spiritual communion with this one God and think through or uh, in one form of ibadah or another seek after the understanding of this one God and this is when the beginning uh, well, this is when the famous event where the angel Gabriel appears to him and says the famous words Iqra and the as the well-known narrative goes is that when the Prophet hears this voice, um, responds, well, I don't read, and this, the angel Gabriel says again, Iqra, and again the Prophet says, and then third time, Iqra, I read, I don't read, and then the the, Muhammad receives the first revelation of Surah Al-Alaq. Iqra' bismu rabbika alladhi khalaq khalqa al-insana min alaq, iqra' rabbuka al-akram, and so on. Okay. There is a... I mean, I, I don't know if I should, uh, well, okay, I'm going to tell people, say, oh, no, you know, don't, don't rush. In the, in the, in the Hadith tradition, um, the Hadith that we have is that the Prophet says, Gabriel said, Iqra, Muhammad then responds, read, I don't read. And then in, in so many versions, it says, And normally this is translated as, um, let's see if, like, it's just what, uh, does Muhammad Asad have it? Oh, he says, then he seized me and pressed me to himself. Yeah. That, normally translated as, then Gabriel pressed me or pressed me to himself and then released me and then said, read. And then I said, I don't read. Then he seized me and pressed me to himself and then he said, read. And he said, I don't read. I actually, this gave me pause because I've always wondered, and even this when, since I was quite young, what is, what is, what is this about? Why would, if, if the angel Gabriel seizes the prophet and, you know, presses him, exerts some type of pressure on him that makes the experience more traumatic and what is the logic behind this making the experience more traumatic um 
but you you find that same type of expression in the majority of the versions of narrating this incident. And eventually, I found that expression, or in in Arabic poetry, and the it is not used in the sense of something grabbed me and seized me and, and pressed me to himself or to her or to herself but that it would be it was used in the sense of I was overcome that the, the, the confrontation with a being that is not of this world, in our modern terminology, which we'd say the, the, um, the energy exerted upon the body of Muhammad by the the by the mechanics of the situation made him overcome. So it is not that the, the Prophet the, uh, Gabriel was inflicting upon Muhammad uh, pressure, but that. That very exact same expression, uh, um, something, took something, refers to being overcome by the event or by the moment created by another. So, and it was, it's used in, in, it was used in the context of love poetry. Um, it was used in the context of um, issues relating to honor and the the honor of battle and honor of uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and then when I found that, I found that it, it far more satisfying than you know it it was. One can imagine that this would be an overwhelming moment. And it would not be at all surprising if the Prophet Muhammad repeatedly felt overcome or repeatedly even felt that he is about to faint. But the way that this is expressed in the tradition is or some, in some versions, the, the word is not there. Uh, directly. Okay. Now, so what is the significance of this 
this being the beginning of the revelation, and especially what follows in the surah. We are often taught that there is an, the opening of the surah talks about read because and and that God has taught you, etc. And then the second half of the surah addresses the persecution by Abu Jahl. This is often what is communicated about the, the, the surah. But let's just keep this in your mind because we, we will revisit these issues in a second. Okay. So, read in the name of your Lord who has created. The beginning of Surah Al-Araq. Who has created human beings from but a clot. Read and your Lord Al-Akram and your Lord is greater or your Lord is um, superior who has taught you by the pen. Okay. The command to read could be taken as a command to communicate the Quran. So it is as if it could be taken to mean that read two people, communicate two people the Quran and do so in the name of your Lord. The difficulty though, if you limit it to the communication of the Quran is Iqra would not be the most ideal word to for the instruction to be to recite. And if the Prophet responds, Ma ana biqari, I don't read. If the, if the meaning was recite to people the Quran, it wouldn't make sense that the Prophet would respond, well, I don't recite. If the command is recite to people the Quran, it would be rude, it would be defiant for the Prophet to respond by saying, no, I will not recite. 
So the fact that the Quran focuses on this particular word, read, in the name of your Lord, and does not specify, does not mention reading the Quran, and the context tells us that the Prophet understood read as a command to do what he in fact is incapable of doing because of he's illiterate. And he says, well, I, I don't know how to read. Gives us pause because then the meaning becomes quite interesting. Why read? And the conclusion is inescapable that the first command, the first, first proof of the majesty and the miracle of God's creation and God's vestedness in what God created is precisely the command to seek knowledge, to learn. It is like saying, The life of, of the people that you know, the people that you grew up with, the Meccans, is one in which the relationship to higher power is always about winning and losing. God is disinterested and Whatever higher powers the Meccans deal with, it is always about a material gain or a material loss. But here what is being what what is what is invoked, what is being communicated to the Prophet, and what is being communicated to Muslims is that in the same way that there is continuous creation, in the same way that creation, this creator never stops creating. This creator is always a khalaq, is always engaged in this universe as a creator. Your charge as a human being and eventually particularly as a Muslim is to always learn. And the instrumentality for the dynamic of continuous learning is continuous reading. 
But you can learn fully accepting and um, in equilibrium with the idea that whatever you learn, you are learning through a partnership, through the care, through the auspices, through the direction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's not that I'm learning for the sake of learning. I am learning as an interactive dynamic with Allah. So I am learning with immoral purpose, immoral conscience. The moral conscience is always that this, this learning should strengthen my bonds with the divine, not unravel them. Or the other option is that you divorce the divine and you learn for the sake of learning. Now, of course, the Meccans, they were occupied with a third option, and that's no learning. There was no forward progression in the world of the Meccans. They were an illiterate society, a society not based on the pursuit of knowledge, but based on the pursuit of mythology and tradition. The Meccans, their past 500 years, were there was no change. They've been doing the same thing they've been doing decade after decade, century after century. It's the same beliefs, and ultimately their interaction with higher powers is always about what do I gain, what do I lose. And so there is no mobility within society. No one can begin as uh, a nobody and through education and knowledge and, and achievement prove themselves. You are born into a status, you grow into the status, you will, you know, those part of the priestly class will always be a part of the priestly class. The children of the priestly class will always be the priests of tomorrow. The, even the person who occupies the role of uh, the, the family that waters the pilgrims, the family that Saqqit Hajij, the family that provides water to pilgrims from decade to decade, century to century, it will always be the same family. It will always be the same processes of watering. Nothing changes, nothing grows, nothing evolves. That was the nature of this society. And this is precisely why when the first revelation comes, and it is Iqra, it is a revolution. Because in, in, in one word, you've set the momentum to change an oral society 
into a written society. A society that had very little use for writing and for reading and for text and for libraries. There were no libraries. There were mu'allaqat, the, the poems that were hanging at the, the Kaaba. But there were no libraries. There hadn't been libraries in, in the history of Arabia, period. We actually have, I mean, there were, there were libraries in Yemen, there were libraries in Egypt, there were libraries in Iraq, but Arabia itself had not evolved, had not changed for centuries. So you come and say, this khalaq, understand the majesty of this khalaq. And in order to understand the majesty of this khalaq, understand that the most spectacular thing about human beings is their ability to read and write. Because Iqra, this is the beginning of it, and then Allama bil Qalam, taught by the pen. And this is not my observation, but even the medieval commentators noticed that they will often say, Lawla al Qalam. And that, that if it hadn't been for the invention of the pen, meaning the invention of writing, in fact, neither deen nor dunya, neither religion nor the temporal affairs of this life would work. Nor would people have emerged from the darkness of ignorance to the light of knowledge. But although commentator after commentator say this, and these are medieval commentators, right? But what gets often ignored is that this is a paradigm shift because you are talking about commentators who now understand that orality is not enough and that memory is not enough and that tradition and storytelling is not enough. How did that shift happen? For them to just so casually say, well, the reason God mentions the pen to Muhammad is because if it hadn't been for the pen, religion wouldn't work, the world wouldn't work, if it hadn't been because writing and reading is the most magical or the most... Um, uh, miraculous of God's creation and that God honored human beings 
with the skill in particular. So even, I mean, we don't want any, uh, there, it's an interesting curiosity whether jinn have libraries. And most of the people who write about jinn say that jinn don't have libraries, that jinn tradition is an oral tradition. They have very different rules. But that reading and writing is a, a truly unique human thing. And it is reading and writing are the keys for human beings to do or to mimic or to keep up the nature of God's relation with creation is dynamism. Creation is never static. There's constant movement. The instrumentality for human beings to also be dynamic is reading and writing. If they stop reading and writing, they become static. So, in order for human beings to be in harmony with the logic of creation, they need to do the, the, the very thing that allows them to learn. And if, you're, if your knowledge through learning is growing, Would it, Razi points this out quite intelligently, says, if the command is to read and write, would it make sense for a God who wants human beings to remain static? to say read and write, because if you read and write, then your knowledge is increasing. But if your knowledge is increasing, if the expectation is for your knowledge to increase, but for you to remain static, that doesn't make any sense. Because if your knowledge will increase, so will your consciousness. So will your comprehension and understanding of things. Now, I would add to this, though. I mean, Razi doesn't mention moral consciousness. But I think that the dynamism is not just in how we live. And I'll, I'll show you in, in a second how this connects in, in an amazing way. It's not just in how you live or how you move or how you communicate or how you transport or how you, but the growth must be also in your moral consciousness that our very sense and our very understanding of justice 
shifts and evolves as our knowledge increase. Our very understanding of equity shifts and evolves as our knowledge increase. Take, for example, a world you live in a, in, in, a, in a world at a certain moment in history in which at any given moment there are people being abducted and maybe murdered or sold into slavery or whatever, trafficked. Um, you live in a historical moment in which there is no way for you to learn about the rate of abductions. There's no, there's no technological means of keeping track of how many people disappear, where they disappear, where they go. So you can imagine that you're living in a historical moment and all you know are rumors about what happens in your locality or perhaps stories about travelers that are coming from Egypt and they say, well, you know, this area, you know, we heard stories that when people were going through this part of the desert, you know, X, Y, Z would happen to them. But knowledge evolves and you go from a world in which we can't even say something like 20 people a day disappear in Europe to knowledge evolves where you are, it's part of your consciousness. The rate of human suffering or the rate of aggression or the rate of assaults become a part of your consciousness. How could it be expected that you don't evolve. If you, if you remain with the medieval frame of mind where you say, well, things happen in the world, you know, it's all a mystery and all I can do is affect my little space where I am, you haven't evolved. Moral consciousness itself is directly impacted by knowledge. Is, and this is just a very, you know, crass example, but the, our conceptions of what even something like compassion means grows with knowledge, with comprehension. So it is extremely significant that the first command is read, but human beings be mindful the challenge is not just to increase your knowledge and to grow with knowledge, but to do so accompanied by the divine. Why? Now, because as, as Surah Al-Alaq will tell us that human beings repeatedly manifest a pattern and that is when they become, when their knowledge increase, when their ability to 
affect their environment and to control their environment increase when their sense of sufficiency self-sufficiency increase the arrogance sets in and they imagine themselves to be their, their sense of self-sufficiency to be divorced from their Lord to not need God but before we move to this Notice, the majority say al-qalam means the normal meaning, the pen. And here it's a reference to writing, that Allah is saying, reflect on the fact that God made you capable of reading and writing, and that this is truly miraculous, because no other creature on the face of this earth, other than human beings, have been given this ability. Um, some have said that a qalam here means the intellect. And that without an active intellect, and this is sort of, a, this was especially among the Mu'tazili orientations that Without an active intellect, reading, the word qara'a, it means to collect something. And the reason we call reading qara'a is because you are putting the letters together. And putting the letters in together in your mind into words, and then putting the words together in your mind into sentences, and putting the sentences together in your mind into concepts, into understandings. There are people who read, but in fact, they do not integrate they do not collect what they're reading into integrated conceptual understandings. So they read without the intellect. So, for instance, the people who know how to read the Quran but they can't understand it. They, they just literally repeat the letters. But this is not the reading that God wants. God is telling you, read with your intellect. For the Mu'tazila and, and others, but especially it was Mu'tazila, who saying immoral reading demands that, that you, need, you read analytically. So the way they, they put it, if you read in a way that fails to notice the, the possible contradictions or inconsistencies and does not work to resolve the contradictions and inconsistencies, then you are not reading with the use of the qalam, meaning the intellect. That it's active reading. It's engaged reading. It's a reading, and it, so if they, they, in their conception, 
if you read, for instance, Allah loves qist, Allah loves justice, but you don't ask yourself, well, what is justice? Then you are reading without the intellect. Reading with the intellect requires that you are constantly seeking they, didn't, the true, they, they would say the true meaning. I would say a deeper meaning. That you're always looking into. So whether it is, I tend to agree that al-qalam here doesn't just mean the pen, but at a deeper level means the intellect. The Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, from the very beginning, because Allah knows that Allah is creating a civilizational paradigm, and that eventually Allah will say, "Kuntum khayra you are the best nation because you enjoy the good and resist the evil. That at the very beginning, Allah said, you know, the 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 the, the cornerstone, the foundational stone that I'm placing for this dynamic is the dynamic of knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge and the growth through knowledge. The challenge though is not to become arrogant through the pursuit of knowledge to imagine yourself as autonomous and independent in the universe. Okay. So that this is precisely though the problem is that as human beings imagine knowledge is always relative that to every to every knowledge is even the more knowledgeable. And to every knowing, there is even a greater knowing. As Allah says in the Quran. But human beings demonstrate a pattern. Is that whenever they believe that their knowledge has allowed them a level of autonomy or self-sufficiency, they imagine an istighna. Istighna is, uh, let's see what Muhammad Asad, how Muhammad Asad translated it. Self-sufficient, yeah. He just says self-sufficient. Istighna is, is to where you feel like you don't need anyone. You don't need God. Well, you know, we can do this without God. Okay. God will tell us what the result of those who imagine themselves self-sufficient, those who pursue knowledge, learn enough to start imagining themselves, sort of another way of doing what the Meccans did. The Meccans excluded God because they believed that Fate is controlled by the chance imposed by these demigods, these, you know, various power sources of influence and powers, demons and angels and so on and so on. Well, 
there's those who exclude God because of their perceived self-sufficiency end up doing the same thing. Both at the end end up excluding God. Okay. So notice. أرأيت الذي ينهى عبدا إذا صلى أرأيت إن كان على الهدى أو أمر بالتقوى أرأيت إن كذب وتولى ألم يعلم بأن الله يرى So this salvo has no ever considered him who tries to prevent a servant of God from praying has though considered whether he is on the right way or is concerned with God consciousness, has though considered whether he may not be giving the lie to the truth and turning his back upon it, does he then not know that God sees all? So here is where most of the tafasir tell you that what this is talking about is Abu Jahl. And that Abu Jahl would make it a point to harass the Prophet when he is praying at the Kaaba. And that Abu Jahl, in fact, once said that if I see him prostrating before the Kaaba, I'm going to put my, my, my boots on his head or on his neck. I'm going to press step on him. And even the traditions go on to say that he tried to do so, but then he got scared because he saw a frightful specter, something terrified him. And he said, you know, when I tried to approach him to step on him, um, a, um, you know, I saw a horrible, scary vision and so on. Um, This report about seeing a scary vision is one of the narratives where I told you that you'll find a lot of fantastical mythology. Um, but the tendency to say that these ayat were talking about Abu Jahl and his harassment of the Prophet I think again it is one of these things where the, the limiting of the ayat to this historical context are unjustified. Yes, Abu Jahl was harassing the Prophet but he wasn't the only one. And in this narrative, in which we are told that when he attempted to physically harm the Prophet, that he was scared away by a specter, well, that doesn't make sense because we know that the Prophet was physically harmed by others in, in other situations. So it's not that 
God made them immune from physical harm. And when you look into this tradition, again, you find these irksome issues of medieval transmission and medieval understanding and medieval ways of narrating values and meaning. I don't think that these ayat were in where they they yes they might be commenting about Abu Jahl they might be commenting on 10 other people other than Abu Jahl or a hundred people other than Abu Jahl but if so then we have to pay attention to what the message of these ayat are not not confine it to an individual and what happens with this individual so look first human beings when they start thinking of themselves as self-sufficient they become unjust they become unjust towards others they become unjust towards themselves one of the most interesting points about and this is a long research story but um, and istighna I became very interested in what does anra'ahu istighna what is um, what is the relationship between istighna and tughyan when you say is become uh, unjust and that because of this perceived self-sufficiency I found in in particular sources their description of Tughyan I thought was very interesting. They said that an insan is a if human beings their money increases they, they their earnings increase that when human beings earn more it is not just that their earnings increase but their consumption increases their clothes become more expensive their means of transportation becomes more expensive and that is the tohian that is the injustice that is partly being referred to here 
if human beings, if their knowledge increases, and instead of this knowledge becoming about moral consciousness, about God consciousness, which is fundamentally about moral consciousness, their knowledge becomes, the, the increase of knowledge becomes a tool to increase their material wealth. And the increase of material wealth becomes an increase in consumption. This is precisely the Turian, the, the, the injustice the moral failure, because Turian is just not injustice. Turian is a oppressiveness, just injustice with oppressiveness and a fundamental moral failure. When you say Tagal insan, meaning they, they become oppressive and morally uh, bankrupt. Turian is a very powerful world. So when human beings follow this this formula of reading and learning, but instead of reading and learning becomes about moral growth, which is fundamentally your relationship with Allah, it becomes about material growth. And material growth becomes about consumptive growth, that your consumption increase, then you falling, you fallen in a Turian. But the thing about Turian is, when it's a cycle, first you're increasing your knowledge, then because of the increase of knowledge, you increase your means. And because of increase of means, you increase your consumption. And because of the increase of your consumption, there is moral decay. But then because of moral decay, what happens when there is moral decay? You don't want to hear those or see those who are advocating morality to you. And thus, because of that moral decay, this is exactly why you fall into, you, you, you find yourself forbidding or fighting, resisting. You are resisting those who are come and prick your conscience, bother your conscience. Because they are morally conscientious. Because they want the guidance. They want the loyalty to Allah. They want the relationship and the humility before the Creator. They want taqwa. Taqwa is moral consciousness. Taqwa is moral consciousness. So when they start advocating for moral consciousness, what do you do? You suppress them. You fight them. 
You say, shut up. You put them in prison. You ostracize them. You marginalize them. You, you want to quiet the voice that's bothering your conscience. Then Allah says, you see, in all of this, all of this, it's like you revert to the heathen Meccans because in the same way the heathen Meccans thought that Allah is disengaged, Allah doesn't see, Allah doesn't observe. Not Meccans thought that Allah doesn't see, Allah doesn't observe because Allah is disinterested, not because God is incapable, but because God doesn't want to see. There's no accountability after all. Well, you are going to be exactly like the heathen Meccans because ultimately you are, you, you will, your arrogance will allow you to, to, to come in and say, God doesn't see anything because, not because God is disinterested, but because there is no God. Same result. You're going to exclude God. And when you exclude God, this is what, this is what the, look, كَلَّا لَإِنْ لَمْ يَنْتَهِي لَنَسْفَعًا بِالنَّاصِيَةِ نَاصِيَةٍ كَاذِبَةٍ خَاطِئَةٍ فَلْيَدْعُ نَادِيَةٍ سَنَدْعُ زَبَانِيَةٍ So, no, indeed, the, the result of this is لَنَسْفَعًا بِالنَّاصِيَةِ Let's see how... Um, Muhammad translates it. That's fifteen. Um, nay, if he does desist not, we shall most sorely drag him down upon his forehead. Okay, very literal, but yeah. Nasfa'an is Nasfa'an bin Nasiya is a is a idiomatic expression. Al-Nasiya comes from the, the, the hairlock at the front of a horse. And it was used to refer to the forehead. Saf al-Nasiya is when a person is degraded because it's as if their head has been lowered to humiliation and degradation to loss to utter loss so Allah comes and tells you that there's fate of such a human being at the end such a human being thinks that their Nadia their their system of support will avail them in fact, it will avail them nothing. The system of support is nothing more than a distraction and like basically distracting entertainment. The system of support that tells them, oh, don't worry about God, there is no God. Oh, you know, this person who's telling you be moral, do good, they're just loser. they're just losers in life. All of these people, 
in the same way, the, the truth of the matter of your Nadia, of your system of support, is that you and them are waiting for the Zabania. You are waiting for the, the tools of, the, the extensions of God's power, those who are going to inflict punishment. But there is another meaning also, Sanat um, al-Zabaniya. Let's see how Muhammad Asad translates Zabaniya. Uh, see if he got that or not. Okay. Well, shall summon the forces of heavenly chastisement. He said, Muhammad Asad says, we shall summon the forces of heavenly chastisement. Yes, that's one of the meanings. But as Zabania, uh, as Zabania are those forces that can inflict um, great suffering and great harm. Not necessarily as just punishment. So, for instance, if you are a political prisoner and you're being tortured, you refer to your torturers, the people who torture you, as the baniyat sijd. So, the zabaniya are any forces that cause severe suffering. Now, there is the suffering in the hereafter, but also the effect of this nausea that becomes degraded, the effect of human beings taking a course of action that results in their own degradation because they've abandoned the moral path. They've abandoned moral consciousness. And not only that, it's not just that they abandoned it, but they've even become unjust by persecuting those who call for moral consciousness, for the clean path. Their fate is Allah says Nasvan bin Nasiya that Allah will allow them to crumble into humiliation and degradation. But also they will call great suffering upon themselves. I believe that Allah is saying I in the same way that Allah does I will allow your demons to haunt you. I will allow your evil deeds to befall you. So when you watch something like human beings commit a great deal of injustice and as a result this, this injustice results in severe suffering like starvation, like economic collapse, like civil war, like foreign invasion. Isn't this in Nad'u Zabaniya? You are suffering the consequences of system of sustained arrogance 
and sustained injustice. You've created it. You've done it to yourself. And Allah warned you and allowed you, ultimately, Allah saves you from the consequences of your evil deeds many times, but eventually, as Allah has warned, tells us elsewhere that Allah is constantly saving people from the follies of their deeds. But when this dynamic works out and Allah finally says, okay, fine, you've insisted, suffer the consequences. And that is why then Allah's succinct advice to Muhammad, and here, is, of course, it's not to Muhammad, it's to all of us. Understand this process, understand this dynamic. But what should you do? Then don't fall trapped, don't fall in the trap of this dynamic and this process. You read and pursue knowledge, but do so in the name of your Lord. And never persecute those who Amara taqwa. And never think that you are entitled to istighna. And never fall into tughyan. Never fall into the trap of, I have more, so I spend more. I'm entitled to greater luxury. No, you're not. That's not the, 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 the formula. That's not the dynamic. What you should do, don't obey, meaning don't succumb, don't surrender to this dynamic. And seek iqtarab. Now, there is a hadith from the Prophet that says that a human being is the closest to their Lord in his prostrated state. In prostrated state, when they're in sujood, they're the closest to their Lord. In, in the best du'a is the du'a you do in sujood. So, but th- th- that's sort of a, a technical way of looking at it, or a mechanical way of looking at things. The, the The point is the moral thrust is that your attitude is to constantly seek after your Lord through sujood, meaning dhikr, and iqtarab, to Seek after a close, closer and closer relation. Make your increase, your make your growth of knowledge. Make the dynamic of increased knowledge bring you closer to your Lord, not further away from your Lord. And because this is the first revelation. Allah communicates this message in a singular form. Because when Muslims saw the singular form, they said, oh, well, it's singular, it must be referring to Abu Abu Jahl. It's singular because it's talking to Muhammad, who at this point has no followers. And it is warning about something that he, Muhammad himself, it will take centuries of human epistemological growth to fully understand the import of Surah Al-Alaq. But 
But, and this is a very big but, the early Muslims, the first generations of Muslims, must have intuitively got the message. Because they go from an oral society to a literate society. They go from a society that doesn't have libraries and doesn't value text to a society that is obsessed with libraries and obsessed with texts. So obsessed that although the Mongols threw so many texts that they turned the color of the Euphrates black from all the ink, millions of texts still survived. I mean, we have no idea the texts that were lost. And although the literary tradition of the Mu'tazila, for instance, have been largely lost, but still what has survived is enormous. And the mere fa- and the simple fact, look at these like archaeological points that are... The fact that Muslims learned from, look at pre-Islamic poetry. Pre-Islamic poetry never starts in the name of God or in the name of, it's very secular. It's all about my pride, the pride of my tribe, my wealth, the wealth of my, my desire, my lust, my, the, the desire of those I care about. It's all about, very secular, it's all about power, it's all about to being obsessed with never starting a text without first full communication of submission to God. We don't, how does this anthropological change occur? How do you go from a people that like to talk about material things to a people who, you know, before they get into anything, any topic, even when they write about science or mathematics, they have to first always go through, you know, in the name of the Lord, you know, who is great, who has inspired us, to a long debaja, a long introduction about how grateful they are to God and so on. This tells you that the change created by the Quran was profound and massive. And Surah Al-Alaq is at the heart of that change. Um, One last note. I've said this before, but um, no harm in saying it again. You know, I've all I I again I you know I've said this before, but I've always been struck by when the the narrations that the Prophet when he receives Surah Al Alaq and he is understandably you know sh- very shaken and and he goes home and talks to Khadija, his wife, and she encourages him and so on. And when he tells her, you know, I fear that I'm losing my mind, and she answers, and I'm again, I'm always struck by her reasoning as to why God 
would never fail him. She, she says, that you are you are you honor your relatives that you carry sustenance to those who need it and you always help the indigent and you are always generous and kind to guests depending on the version and you you always help and aid people when they are in need her whole reasoning as to why God can never fail Muhammad are all downright ethical precepts intuitively understood and comprehended in ethical values that is a profound indication that when that of the that so much of of virtue and ethics are intuitively known confirmed by god god that god didn't come to construct a legalistically based system of ethics it is law was supposed supposed to affirm intuitively known and comprehended system of ethics um okay that is it alhamdulillah that complete surah al-alaq ulu project ulum style okay assalamu alaikum bismillahirrahmanirrahim i i completely agree 100 with witsky's comment that was absolutely epic <laughs> so thank you so much what was very interesting is the first time we did Surah Al-Alaq was January 18th of 1997. So it's been over 25 years, which is incredible. And um, so it's really like, I can still remember we were doing this in Texas um, very shortly after we got married. And so this is like, and so the journey begins. It's amazing. Um, there, was, there was one other time. There was what? One there other time? One other time when you started it, but you only, I think, like, did a couple of verses. Oh, when you started it, it and only did a couple of verses? Oh, really? You were going to start at Tafsir. Oh, but Al Alaq. We started with Al Alaq. Oh, do you remember? Did you start with Al Alaq? I don't remember. Oh my gosh. So many, so many things. It's pretty incredible. Um, I wanted to thank Omar for adopting this Surah and also um, take this as an opportunity to plug that we still have 21 Surahs that have yet to be adopted. So um, if you want to be on this, uh, on the legacy forever, <laughs> um, join us, adopt a surah, and you know, inshallah, it would be our honor to include your name in the tafsir. And so when, you know, hundreds of years from now, people find this tafsir, inshallah, inshallah, they'll be like, who is that? <laughs> but you'll be part of it and it'll, continue to earn hasanet long after we all leave this planet inshallah so um check it out if you go to the usuli.org uh, website there's a project illumin page adopt a surah you can see 
um, what is still remaining. With one caveat, we just had a recent adoption of Surah al-Zukruf, and I haven't had a chance to update the website. So everything else, though, is, um, I think, current. And um, alhamdulillah, I just, you know, wanted to say that as, you know, as a convert, like I've said this before, but um, you really don't realize how much you miss by, you know, reading English translations. Um, this project has so clearly every time underscored just the, the paucity of meaning, just how like limited you are in your understanding of this incredible book, just by having one meaning, one verse, you know, one iteration when you look at any translation. And I think even um, tonight's halakha just makes it so clear I mean, every single um, surah that we've covered has has really demonstrated the nuance and the different ways you can understand um, the verses. But this one in particular, um, you know, when you go in and you tell us about your research of Arabic poetry, for example, to understand this issue of like pressing on, you know, the prophet, peace be upon him. I mean, you know, who, who really... Um, this is such a gift, you know, like when you can take us through this this research journey with you, when you can say, you know, I was really like curious about this idea of pressing on him and making this whole traumatic, this whole, you know, experience more traumatic. And then to find that this meaning was about an overwhelming moment, um, that you found this, you know, in love poetry and that, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, felt overcome this just touches you in such a deep and meaningful way. It changes your feeling about everything that you're reading. Um, and these are the types of things that make the Quran penetrate your brain, penetrate your heart, and, and make the whole, whole you know, tradition come alive. Um, you know, understanding what a revolution it was and a paradigm shift to go from the, an oral tradition to a written tradition and everything with knowledge. And we know from our own experience how when you increase in knowledge, you know, you increase in, in arrogance, in, you know, your ability to feel self-sufficient. I mean, this is all stuff that as you hear it, you recognize it to be true. It's intuitive. You know people. You've seen it. You see it in yourself. This is what makes the Quran, again, become, you know, a living tradition, something that is meaningful and life transformative. And, and I think for people, um, who don't who just believe that the Quran is medieval and, and has nothing to say to us, you know, this completely flies in the face of that. And so just, you know, I'm, it's so, um, I don't even remember 25 years ago you talking about this or what you said. I know it was a very different thing, um, but to have the opportunity to go through it again is just truly a, just a, such a divine gift. Thank you, alhamdulillah, for, um, for you sharing this epic understanding with us. Um, before I know you wanted to add more, but I wanted to ask you, before we get into the questions, um, go ahead, and, I don't know, you had something else you wanted to add, right? Yeah, uh, okay, but, but before I do, just the comments you made uh, sort of struck me. Um, uh, just r remember, just uh, this, um, about the adoption of the surah, Sadaqah Jari, I mean, subhanAllah, it's a, um, Every, what does that uh, mean for a non-Arabic speaker? I mean, uh, an, an ongoing source of hasanat, uh, that's literally what Sadaqah Jariyah is. It's, it's, it's that you do, you, you 
you perform a sadaqah and it keeps giving charity. more. Sadaqah is charity, right? Yeah, yeah, but subhanAllah that even like any good you do is is, is described as a sadaqah and, and it keeps earning hasanat. So every time someone learns something from this tafsir or is touched by it or it's, it affects them and you, you earn hasanat for long after you're even around. Um, um, the 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 other thing I, I was going to say, just in uh, because of your comments, um, it, it, the the fact that you were touched by by um, the the um, uh, touched by the, the this point about pressing on him and so on, I. I Maybe it teaches me to actually always err on the side of inclusion because I came very close to not even mentioning this point. I thought it's you know who would be interested in it. Um, so don't it's rush, interesting. Don't ad- omit. <laughs> don't pass yeah. over. <laughs> I just thought it's such a such um, a yeah. Anyway. Such a bookish point, but but also the um, it's not it's not just um, it's not just the paucity of translations uh, because even if well one a lot of people who know Arabic they think they can understand pre-modern texts but actually they don't. So, I mean, the, the problem with a lot of the tafsir literature is that people open up books that were written centuries ago and they think they understand what they're reading, but they don't. But, but even if they do, um, the, since, I mean, since the, the, the age of civilization ended and then we entered into the age of colonialism and commentaries on the Quran have ceased to try bringing the Quran to life and 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 often actually a lot of the modern commentaries they they copy literally just copy verbatim from the tradition sometimes even with without bothering even elaborating or explaining or adding anything um, so I mean subhanallah it, it knowing how that knowing what the tafsir literature is like and knowing what is out there uh, yeah you you'd, you'd wish that there was greater receptivity to to what we're doing because I, I know that and subhanAllah I mean this is up to Allah but it's just um, um, yeah the tradition is oh, but anyway well, yeah what I want to say is um, two points one notice that in Surah Al-Alaq the I mean, I've already 
alluded to it when I said that this is a different understanding of God because here when Surah Al-Alaq says, don't they know that God sees they will return to God? This is a vested God. This is an involved God. But the other point is that a something that's going to become a consistent theme in the Quran, and that is the system of morality doesn't work. And this is a consistent point in the Quran. System of morality, moral consciousness, does not really work without a higher power that is observing, that is keeping account, and that ultimately delivers justice. And so when when even it talks about those who will oppress those who seek taqwa, in other words, those who will enter the role of the oppressors. And it it the the comment to Ultimately, they're, they're, what that means is that they enter the role of the oppressors is they act upon their power. And it's telling them that, yes, you're acting upon your power, but there are consequences. And I think that is a, we take this for granted all the time, but this is a critical point of morality because it is very easy to conceive of moral awareness losing its footing or becoming self-indulgent or becoming self-referential or becoming um, distorted in a million different ways if it is not anchored in the belief, in the conviction that justice is possible and justice is certain at the end. The corruptions of power has a a distorting lens and it's a consistent distorting lens unless you're able to say, well, you know, yeah, I, I might distort perceptions of things, but God's perception is not distortable and the consequences per God's perception, uh, I, I can't affect that and I can't manipulate that. So we, we notice in Surah Al-A'la, you know, when it says, you will return to God, but don't, don't, don't you know that God sees this consistent theme that we see, for instance, in which we talked about Surah Abbas, for instance, that, you know, that uh, this the the moral the, the the moral presence of God for moral accountability and moral cohesion is really important. The other point is note at the uh, see uh, let's see how he translates. It says um, no, 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 no,
16. Okay. So Muhammad Asad translates it very literally. He says, the lying, rebellious forehead. Okay, so Lanasfan bin Nasiya that it's as I said, it's idiomatic that for humiliation and degradation and loss. The in a horse, the this area that what is called the nausea at the front is often an indication of the value of a horse. The, so in Arabic poetry, they talk a great deal about, I mean, there, there's so many descriptions of a horse's nausea because the value of the horse and the beauty of a horse was often focused on, you know, they saw with their eye what a, a, a person who doesn't know anything about horses like myself can't, doesn't quite understand. But anyway, in human beings, the... The nausea is the center of what was was understood or was often portrayed as the center of your identity, the center of who you are. And when Allah describes us as nausea, kaziba, khati'a, so these two things, khati'a, it is mistaken it is it is in a state of grievous error so we say nausea khati'a is like you know you, you think you are with your knowledge your increased knowledge with your self-sufficiency with your autonomy and so on, you think you are something but in re, in reality you don't know you don't realize how deeply in error you've sunk. The other is the kaziba. The, it's a lying nausea. Why lying? Because it lies to itself and ultimately in order to justify fighting moral consciousness and morally conscientious people it will have to result, resort to deception and lies. That you are not going to be able to persecute people who are seeking the moral path without lying corruptions about who you are, about what they are, about the reality that you live in, you're not just going to corrupt this reality for yourself, but you're going to corrupt it for other people to justify. Like, you know, the, the, and later on, the Quran often portrays the Pharaoh as an example of that, you, who, who consistently is forced to tell people, don't trust your moral understandings don't adjust your and in fact the pharaoh goes does what tyrants always have to do to portray those on the ethical past as corruptors of the earth to say oh they're there for a sad which is an 
which is a horrendous lie, because you are causing corruption, and you take those who are on an ethical path, and you portray them as the corruptors, which anyone that has studied tyranny and tyrants in history will see this as a steady uh, theme. Um, you know, that that's the, the first thing tyrants say. So this, this type of oppression doesn't become possible without a, literally, a lying nausea. A, 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 the essence or of the be, the essence of that being, of that oppressor, becomes about lies, lies to themselves, lies to others. Uh, yeah. I, I mean that's amazing because we look at what happens in our world today, and it's just as relevant, if not more so, oh. now, fourteen hundred years later. So again, it's. Um, another validation of how powerful this message is at every level. Um, okay, the, um, let's, I guess let's just, I wanted to start by my, my favorite question is if you could tell us about your engagement with Sora Alak, if you recall like where you were, <laughs> this is like probably a really long time ago. Um, well, was it 97? Because back in in 97, I, I was in a very different relationship with the Quran. Uh, I was much more focused on largely communicating the tradition. And yeah, there were interventions, but interventions were often on micro points um, um, surat al-alaq when when i when i decided to and initially, remember that I was just doing this for myself because I never thought that I'm going to share it with anyone. But I thought, okay, well, I, I want to understand things not being so slavishly bound to tradition. Uh, it was the surah that I took on after the fatha. And I had reached the conclusion that the fatha is like a covenant. It's a contractual covenant between God and human beings. Um, it is literally the key to everything. And if uh, I just, my, my journey is a lot of course that I felt like he, he, you know, it would always. I grew up hearing people always say, "Oh, you know, this is uh, God's first command was to read, and and, and this is." But um, yeah, but to uh, it's not just to read, but it, it what is reading about, and what is what is growth of knowledge about? 
Um, and the, liber the most liberating thing with Surat Al-Alaq is when I've realized that the, the connections between Surat Al-Alaq and limiting it to what Abu Jahl did, that connection was tenuous. Because I always was under the impression that this was an absolutely a hundred percent. There's, there's, there's. You know, it, it's decided. It's settled. There, there. You're not going to be able to raise any questions about that. Alaq was revealed about Abu Jahl, but when I started looking into the origins of that and the hadith, the transmissions. The the um and, and I found actually there it's far more time yeah sure that that narration is in Bukhari, but in Bukhari and many other books of Hadith, but the narration tells you about Abu Jahl and his persecution of the Prophet, saying that Surat Al Alaq was about this particular narration that we find in Bukhari and Muslim and so on is the part that's tenuous. It was sort of a, a, a thing of comment, some commentators or early, very early commentators say, well, this matches this rather than we, we having a, um, a resolute source that tells us no, God absolutely revealed this surah about Abu Jahl. And then when you, when, then you, you start understanding, then you start pursuing the language of what does Nasiya mean, you know, what does Nasfa'an um, but uh, Nasiya, um, so, you know, um, what could the meaning beyond a historical event be? And, and I think, put it this way, Surah Al-Alaq, because it's the first revelation, also set a roadmap for the rest of the Quran. It's, you can't understand the Quran. You, or put it this way, you must understand the Quran in light of what Surah Al-Alaq says. Because everything that it tells us about knowledge, about learning, about growth, about moral consciousness, is a, it's a, an elaboration and a development upon the theme that was established by Surah Al-Alaq. And it is when you understand that, you know, God f from the very first revelation told you, told you individually, because again, I was initially thinking that I'm never going to share this, um, that pursuit of knowledge could be about moral growth and should be about moral growth. It changes your relationship to reading. 
reading is not just about getting a degree or getting tenure or entertaining, entertainment. Or Reading becomes a, a moral act about moral growth. Surat al-Alaq anchored my understanding that the reason Allah says read and reminds us of the miracle of writing and reading and the role of the intellect is that your relationship to knowledge must be a relationship of moral growth. So if you are reading and and this is, I mean, at the time, you, you, you know, I've, I've always been, as you know, fascinated by horror movies and uh, subjects like Satanists and things like that. Well, if, you're, if you use reading to achieve the opposite of moral growth, I understood why it is such a massive sin. So those who actually use that remarkable gift but fail to achieve moral growth I really it really clicked why they are described as having such a decrepit nausea but it was it was early in the process so I, I, I remember we were in Van Nuys um, like a year before we moved to Thousand Oaks so what is that? Um, about maybe 2014. It, was yeah. it after the heart attack or before? It was after the heart attack. So after 2013. So was it one of the, the first? The heart surahs? attack was, by the way, one of the reasons I started on this journey, the Quran. So. Well, so yeah. was it one of the first ones you engaged? Yeah, it was right after Fatha. So Fatha, you started with Fatha. Yeah, I started with Fatha. Wow, amazing. So actually, the one thing I forgot to say in the introduction is you had said that now as we approach the shorter surahs through Project Illumin that you were going to try and stay as close to order of revelation yeah, as possible. Yeah, so try to stay. Yeah. Inshallah. Okay, wonderful. And this is supposed to also be a Q&A for Mumtahana, so I don't want to lose the opportunity to ask you about your engagement with Surah Mumtahana and where you were and what was going on with that too. Uh, Montana was late. Um, in the little book of where I tried to re reconstruct the. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I. Um, it looked like I focused on Muntahina around the same time, or right after in Nisa, which is, I'm not quite sure why, but. Hmm. Um, I was in Thousand Talks about a year after I moved there. Um, yeah, Muntahina is, um, 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 you know, you, from the Tafasir, Muntahina, you get the impression or you you learn from the tafsir that Imamtahina was about um, um, 
about calling out the hypocrites who um, who had failed to join the pilgrim pilgrimage and telling them that they don't have a share they're, they're not going to be able to share in the booty of war the the uh, spoils of war and that Muntahina was about telling Muslim women that they can't be married to non-Muslims. So it, it, you're always given a very legalistic um, understanding of Muntahina. That it, this, is, this is the surah in which it was legislated that Muslim women cannot be married to a non-Muslim. And and so the focus of that in, in at least the the tafsir type learning is that the that um, women would who would um, convert after Sulh al Hudaybiyah um, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah that they would were not returned back to Quraysh because their marriages are um, dissolved because they, they can't, the marriages are void for, uh, from once they became Muslim, they can't remain married to non-Muslims. But there, there were a lot of questions that um, um, it didn't, it was never convincing to me that the whole issue was the quote unquote the hypocrites is that they're just told you can't take um, you can't you can't share in the spoils of war i mean it just didn't it didn't it didn't jive with the quranic message um um it, it Muntahina has a number of predictions which I remember, like I wrote, um, are these predictions? Why the predictions? Because it talks about the future and it says about things that had not unfolded unfolded at the time when Muntahana is revealed. Um, and understanding in Muntahana, and it had a very different tone and style than Al-Ahzab, for instance, or um, earlier soar about, er, about even the Battle of Badr or Uhud, or, where even if there is a victory, Muslims are chided rather than given good, no, good news. Um, and there was a part to Muntahina that just confounded me, and that is this whole insistence upon treating the dissolved marriages as a khula. You know, you, you return the dowry rather than just saying the marriage is dissolved, which is just knowing, reading medieval legal history, you know that that's what normally no one would ever think of compensating the enemy for anything or, you know. So these types of questions uh, is what 
Odon Muntahna is quite short, but it took a lot of work because trying to figure out answers to these questions turned out to be a much more involved research than I initially had thought. Um, and you, you know, I wasn't using a computer where I can put in search words and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm using, in you know, tables of content and I'm re reading hundreds of pages in hope of finding, you know, a reference in, in sources that are like, you know, I remember, for instance, I was reading for hundreds of pages in Ansab al-Arab, um, uh, Ansab al-Ashraf, um, which is, uh, I mean, it, it, an unusual source. It's not the type of source that you would think you were, but I remember I was looking for a particular issue about, um, anyway. Um, so it was a lot of work, but then, once I put the research together, after you know taking all the notes on specific issues, then in Muntahana sort of came to to light in a in a very powerful and um, unmistakable way. That it it was a turning of a new chapter, and. And a, and, a, and a new phase in the seventh Hijri year. Uh, and importantly, it started setting the stage to the Prophet ﷺ leaving the scene. We, you know, we'll talk about this, inshallah, when we deal with Tawbah and, um, and Al-Ma'idah. Um, but it's clear that after the seventh Hijri year, Allah was setting the grounds for the Prophet leaving the scene. And inshallah we'll talk about that. And that had, I mean, when you realize that, it has a profound impact. It, it's, it, it's from... And it's actually, it, it has a profound emotional impact because you realize that, you know, 12 years of setting the foundation in Mecca and then seven years of um, unrelenting moral lessons in, in Medina. And then three years of saying, okay, people, you're going to be on your own. Um, don't mess it up. Uh, it, 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 of course, affects your relation to the Quran. It's, uh, then, then you can't read any part of the Quran uh, separate from the rest of the Quran. It's like every part of the Quran you read has to relate to all other parts of the Quran. <clears throat> and the zikr for Muntahina is uh, verse 5. 
And how about for a look? Is it the There's whole thing? There's no look. It's okay. the whole thing. You know, I think one of the things that's so powerful, um, I love asking you to tell us about your engagement and want to encourage you not to leave out anything small either is because it also teaches us lessons about how to interact and how to think of the Quran, like even just what you said about how when you read the Quran, you can't read anything separate from anything else, that you have to take it as its totality, or when you're thinking about Surah Allah, that this is setting the stage for you know the rest of the revelation to come, and that you know you always have to be thinking back to that, like is your reading increasing your moral growth and all of that. Like these are the lessons that we don't hear anywhere else, even if you just read the Quran, you wouldn't ever get that. So that is really, truly gold for, for us. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I wanna open it up to any questions here, and we can cover both Alak and Mumtahana. I know, Rami, you had one, right? Oh, no. Joe? It's a Shana. good thing. No questions are a good thing. <laughs> this is stop, your stance. Stop instigating. <laughs> okay. Anybody? Harvey? Very technical question. Okay. We'll take it. Thank you so much, Do you remember the next... I'm thinking of future tafsir presentation. I, I echo Grace the note about the love poetry. And, uh, that's absolutely something to include. Oh. <laughs> so I'm glad you included it. Do you know... Do you remember have you got written down anywhere the sources? Because I think that's something that would be a real flash that would really jump off the page. I'll have to look. Um, I mean, you know, for for uh, the irony is a shift from an oral tradition to a written, but. When I was doing this, I, I, I don't know, I was just completely convinced I'm not going to share it with anyone, just, it's just for me, so I often wasn't, so I, I'd have to look, I hope I wrote it, because I don't, yeah, I don't know. But I think I can, I, I can probably, if I'm looking for it, I can probably retrace where where I can find uh, the evidence of Akhazani um, Fagattani. Because I, I can, I sort of have an image of myself reading in Al-Aqd al-Farid, but which volume, I mean, yeah, I'd have to look. Okay. Um. I have a couple questions from Audit. Thank you, Audit. Um, let me start with this, the shorter one, which is um, the adopter store is considered a sadaqa jariya. Is that also valid for discharging Ramadan zakat as well? Um, I somehow thought the Ramadan zakat is a standalone obligation and couldn't be treated as a sort of a two birds and one stone concept. No, um, uh, okay, let's just dis distinguish because the there is the cattle foot which is the which is a set amount but it's a it's a small amount it's um the cattle foot by in american dollars do you guys remember what is it like 10 to 20 dollars 
Yeah, so like ten to twenty dollars, but I'm probably uh, the zakat that added means is the annual zakat. That yes, he says yes. Yeah. Uh, no, that zakat can that annual zakat can go to 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 any charitable any charitable or Islamic, um, because masarif is zakat or the things that you can spend zakat on is set in the Quran. And so, you know, helping the orphan, helping the wayfarer, and among them is um, uh, supporting the, the, the cause of God. And and a definitely zakat can be a sadaqa jariya because it, uh, it, it, it the all the is also a sadaqa and all a sadaqa jariya means is that you are spending on something that just doesn't get consumed one time or helps and gets consumed one time so for instance uh, people who expended their zakat in building a school that school is a sadaqa jariya because it, 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 the hasanat from that school keep paying out, you know, every time people are educated. Or if you uh, use your zakat to build a hospital, you know, you continue earning hasanat every time people benefit from the hospital. Or a old Islamic practice, uh, because in the pre-modern time, there you know, desert environment, long distances, people would use their zakat to build a sabil. A sabil is basically a water source where people can obtain water for free, and they, they would build it in in, in a spot where people are traveling, there, there are people, you know, communicating back and forth. And although it was built with zakat money, but the hasanat that comes from that, it, it pays off hasanat every time someone uses it. And, you know, depending on how long it's there, it could be paying off hasanat for decades. Um, like digging wells for instance which was one of the you know looking for groundwater and then digging a well so that travelers would be able to access water um so it sadaqa jari is a description of the sort of the moral quality of the act not the the legal category of the act alhamdulillah Beautiful, thank you. Okay, um, so this is really cool, actually. Adit um, shared a, um, I guess, an interpretation of the first five verses, right? So the question is, um, may I ask if the following five verses in English translation are valid or if they have any legitimate Islamic root in Islamic traditions because it's worded in a very different translation yet, in my opinion, a very relevant translation in modern-day context for humans, civic progress, etc. So this is a very different 
uh, translation of the first five verses. Verse one, blossom forth, and I should say this is taken from Muhammad the World Changer by Muhammad Jabara. Mm. Um, blossom forth, inspired by your rejuvenating cosmic mentor who revives the dormant to forge empowering connections. Dare to blossom as your cosmic mentor provides spiritual comfort, the visionary one who guides the unlocking of layers of learning, elevates the stagnant to once inconceivable heights. I mean, it's very poetical, um, but... Um, <laughs> but unrelated to the language. So blossom forth, <laughs> inspired by your rejuvenating cosmic mentor. Iqra, bismillah You know, okay, so how is Iqra blossom forth? Bismillah in the name of your Lord, inspired by your rejuvenating cosmic mentor. So God has to be a cosmic mentor. And um, then who revives the dormant to forge empowering correct connections. Ismi Rabbika Ladi Khalaq, Khalaq who created humans from a clot. That's the literal language. This becomes who revives the dormant to forge empowering connections. So, you know, if you're if you're looking for the where is the Arabic in empowering connections? Is Alaq uh, the dormant? So I guess, every, but not every dormant, everything is Alaq. So I mean, it's very poetical, but it, it, this is like r poetry writing in your Quran. Um, your you're inspired by, but it's it's writing a different text. It shouldn't be called a translation. Was it intended to be a translation? No, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have a problem with calling God a cosmic mentor. Um, and I have a problem with thinking of khalq, of creation as forged empowering connections. Uh, it's very new agey. It appeals to new agey people, but it creates immense philosophical problems. Um, dare to blossom. Again, very self-helpy, new agey. <laughs> dare to blossom. As your cosmic mentor provides spiritual comfort, I have a very big problem with describing God as just providing spiritual comfort. It's, it, it's, it caters to the new agey, selfish, right entitled uh, human being who wants the entire cosmos to be about them and about catering to them it's the same thing, like, you know, my guiding angels and my parents are the dead taking care of me and uh, my spiritual guides who, you know, it, it's just, but philosophically, I mean, God becomes a cosmic mentor providing spiritual comfort. 
that's God's role? Uh, so how about, and, you know, to blossom force, blossom force inspired by rejuvenating. So blossom force, does it matter what moral past I'm blossoming force? What if I'm blossoming force to be like um, that imam in Dubai, the Badr project? What is it called, that guy? Oh, <laughs> the Badr yeah, Club. The Badr Club. Okay, we'll have right, to show people right. that. I mean, this is exactly the type of Islam, uh, the Badr Club, uh, that would inspire the Badr Club Emirati type Islam, where, you know, Badr becomes about Making testosterone, <laughs> testosterone, making a lot of money, marrying more than one woman, you know, uh, because that's actually part of their advertise, you know, how to marry one woman and work on the second as you're married to the first. What we're talking about for people who don't know, if you go to YouTube and search up Butter Club, B-A-D-R Club, is that right? Butter Club. They, this is this uh, Emirati-inspired... Um, commercial, high uh, quality, high definition. It's all about like, you know, learning how to be a man and how you have to be, uh, learn to drive fast cars and ride fast horses and, and they'll take your $3,000 a week and turn you into part of the materialistic butter club. Is it really, it's, it's kind of a, yeah, mashallah, <laughs> shocking kind of video, but um, very Emirati um, yeah. at this point. Check it out. Very, I mean, I can tell that the person who wrote this has read a lot of New Agey self-help stuff. Um, <laughs> Muhammad Jabara. I don't know who he is, but he's read a lot of New Agey self-help stuff. We'll check it out. <laughs> Thank you, Audit. That was a really good question. And it was great to see your reaction, too. So that was very valuable. Thank you so much. OK, that is all the questions we have. Um, I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Um, get excited. Surah Al-Tawbah next week, inshallah. Um, that'll be uh, a big pray, one. Pray that Allah, Allah helps sessions. me because I I'm just have work popping up from every crook and can, you know, what is that expression? Nook and cranny. N nook and cranny, yeah, yeah. Usually I say we're buried under two mountains. I think we should increase, yeah. and it's like three or four mountains now. So <laughs> it's crazy. And as um, always, pray is, for us. is rich people's fault. Just remember that. <laughs> Making friends. Okay, everybody have a wonderful week. Inshallah, we will see you very soon. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. alaikum.